Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, Chuck, how are you doing today? Doing all right. We also have Caleb Fernari. Hey, Chuck, how's it going? Doing well. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just by way of announcement, we're starting a new show, or I guess I'm starting a new show. We released the first episode this morning as we record this. It's called the Dev Influencer Show. You can find it at devinfluencers.com slash podcast. And I bet you can guess what it's about, talking about being an influencer in the developer and DevOps spaces. So if you're interested in that, go check out the show. I'm also doing an accelerator, and you can find more about that at devinfluencers.com. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. We have a special guest this week, and that is James Donahue. James, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? all the way from the Britain and BBC. Hi, yeah, James. I'm a software engineer at the BBC. I'm really happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. I mean, some of my favorite shows come out of the BBC, Doctor Who and Downton Abbey, which are very much not alike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I have enjoyed those shows. Great British Baking Show is another one that started at BBC. I don't think they own it anymore, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Very popular. Yeah, everyone loves that show. Yeah. So, so you're you're like famous adjacent, right? We'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, you wrote this article on code reviews, and what was interesting is is that we we lined it up on this show, and then Michaela was asking me what shows to get it on, and I was like, well, it's kind of good for any of the shows, and she's like, can I get it on the DevOps show? And initially, I told her no, and then because because usually I see the the article name, I don't see the author name, and so you get on, and I'm trying to make this connection, like, what are we talking about here? But I realize that we're doing a lot of infrastructure in code these days, right? Whether it's, hey, I'm going to go spin up this virtual server and then run Chef or Puppet or something against it, or whether or not we have some provisioning software that goes out and manages our network or manages our servers, or whether we have something that manages things through Kubernetes or things like that. And so those code reviews are just as important as the other code reviews we're doing. So I just kind of want to give people a little bit of background. This does apply to what you're doing in DevOps. But to get us started, I was looking at this article and you kind of explain, hey, look, you know, we we had to go remote. And because of that, you know, we we experienced certain things. And so we started doing the code reviews in a certain way. And I was wondering if you could tell that story, because I think this is something that people are really going to identify with, that people are going to go, oh, yeah, we have that problem. And, you know, maybe this will help some of them find that solution that they're looking for. Right. Yeah, of course. Happy to. 
So basically, the area that I work in at the BBC is the World Service, and we have international news websites. We have about 35 million weekly users across the globe. The sites are in 40 different human languages as well. So there's quite a lot of complexity in our code base dealing with all of that internationalization and the fact that it has a global audience. And we started rebuilding that application a couple of years ago. We had an old version that was a, a monolithic PHP application, serves very well, but it was time to update the technology. And we wanted, we had lots of ideas for new features we wanted to build. And what happened was we went in quite a short space of time from having about five developers working on um, a new renderer. We built a, a React-based isomorphic um, single-page application to replace the old, the old monolith. I think we had about five developers working on it initially. And over the course of really just a few months, we went from that to about 35 developers. And also another thing happened was that we went from all being based in one office in, in London, a broadcasting house, to being distributed across different cities in the UK and also in other countries as well. In Africa, we had some developers. We We were starting to have to get used to remote first development. And this is before... The pandemic. This is before you know the big changes of last year. We were having to adapt to scaling quite quickly, and also being remote first all the time. And that's when we started to notice that something interesting was happening to code reviews. Some of our code reviews were taking a bit longer than we'd like. We noticed there were some problems where code reviews would spend a long time going on. There'd be a lot of comments on the pull requests, a lot of back and forth between different people. A lot of new engineers were contributing to the code base and. Not all of them really knew how we did code reviews or how we approached them. And we felt that there was probably a lot of tacit assumptions in the way we were doing code reviews. We also had a bit of feedback from some of our developers. that They found the process quite confusing and quite stressful sometimes. And it was really at that point that we thought, okay, we need to take a step back from this. We need to talk about what is this code review process for? Why do we do code reviews? And the interesting thing was was that none of us could really remember ever having had this conversation before. We'd all been doing code reviews for years, <laughs> and we never actually said, why do we do this? What are we trying to get out of this? And that was really the starting point. We, we wanted to talk about it honestly and openly and, and really find out what everyone wanted to get out of the code review process. That makes sense. It's funny, too, because as you go to kind of that remote first or primarily remote culture, right? Because some companies went almost fully remote and other companies, they either had some kind of requirement or managed to have hold on to having some of their folks stay in the office, right? But as you move even part of your team out of the office, the requirements on your communication go way up. And so it's it's definitely interesting that, yeah, all of a sudden you're having discussions about how you communicate in these ways. I'm a little curious before we dive into how to start approaching this, though, are, are there panelists, uh, Jeffrey and Caleb? I mean, what, what, what's been your experience with this kind of thing going remote in this way, especially through COVID? Yeah, I, no, I, I think you sort of hit it on the head. Um, I mean, it, it totally made us really refocus on how we communicate and, and, you know, you just can't walk over to the, to the uh, next person's cube or, you know, or say, hey, let's just grab a breakout room or something. I mean, a physical breakout room, not a Zoom breakout room, right? And that changed a lot. But but I, I'm curious. I wanted, to, I wanted to throw out a question back to James. I'm curious what you guys came up with. Because when I read you know, your article in Medium, I was thinking, wow, you know, you ask all these questions about like, 
why are we doing code reviews? And I was thinking, you know, what you said, it's all of the above. And you're like, what, uh, like 15 or 20 different answers. What did you guys come up with? Like, what is the reason? What's the motivation? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. We we did list a lot of things that we thought code, re- code reviews were for. I think in the blog post, I put like 15 different possible reasons that you could do code reviews. The thing we kept on coming back to time and time again, the motivation for code reviews that, that we seem to be hitting, no matter how we talked about it, was communication and understanding. A lot of the things that that, that I summarized in the article really came came out of discussions in our teams where we were asking what code review is for. So, you know, if you're if you're if you're discussing different approaches on a code review, that's a form of communication. If you're linking to other documentation or resources, that's communication. You know, you might be checking that work meets uh, certain quality standards or thinking about readability and maintainability, those kind of things. Uh, communication seems to be the recurring theme here so we felt that that was really something we like we wanted to put at the heart of what we were saying that code reviews were for because a lot of people have got different expectations about what code reviews are really for than that and that kind of surprises people when you when you say to them hey it's more about communication than anything else yeah absolutely i always felt like it was there was almost this you know unspoken idea that it's all about quality like code quality and hey is this up to snuff and you know i mean I, i've got a you know security background so I, i'm i'm in cybersecurity and application security all the time and so when you know folks in my world think about code reviews we're always fo- focused on thinking about code defects that are of a security nature right how, how do we how do we try to find those underlying issues in code and sometimes, just to go off on a tangent for a moment, because I think it's interesting, is that, you know, we'll do a lot of reverse engineering of code to sort of understand, you know, where can somebody who's trying to do something nefarious, where can they sort of grab grab a toehold and do something interesting, whether it's around access control, authentication, something like that, you know, in, in the software base. And so I, I just sort of gravitate towards that idea that code reviews are always about you know, finding code defects. And and it's interesting because I, I think there's a lot to what you're saying that it really should be a lot about just getting the whole team together and sort of communicating and, you know, sort of more on getting them on the same page because, you know, I at least generically speaking, I can see a lot of value in that. And then doing, you know, if you've got specific, pur- you know, purposes like what I'm describing, then that might be a a different use case, a different reason, and maybe a, diff- a different setting for running a code review outside of, well, I think, what you're describing. But I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sort of just trying to get it all gelled in, in my own mind. Sure. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Jeffrey. I mean, the the view that code reviews are about finding defects is is uh, primarily about finding defects is, is a really widely held one. One of the things I mentioned in the article is there's a, a really interesting piece of academic research that was done at Microsoft in, I think, 2013, where they examined hundreds of uh, code reviews across large parts of uh, their code base. And they analyzed each code review in terms of what the actual outcome of that code review was. They looked at every comment on 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 the pull request and they categorized them all. 
And they, they basically figured out that the most common outcome of code reviews was basically people asking questions about something, other people explaining things. And that process of communication, learning about the code or discussing the code is, is the most common outcome. Whereas when they interviewed the developers and said, what do you think is the most common outcome of code reviews? They said, oh, it's all about finding defects. But the researchers found that finding defects is, it does happen. Of course, it does happen. Sometimes people will find a bug in code just from looking at it visually. But there's actually a lot of other stuff going on. There's there's coaching and mentoring. There's you know exchanging ideas and approaches. There's not all of it is just about saying, hey, we found a bug. You got this wrong. This needs to change. And although you know that is one possible outcome. Yeah, I like that in the sense that I, how do I put it? Because when we do the code reviews, a, a lot of the communication in the code reviews is about that. Right? I didn't see anything wrong with this, and so I approved the pull request. That that's kind of how we run at work. I mean. We do mob programming. So, you know, we have different teams of like three, four people, sometimes two people, you know, and we just get on a remote call. It's exhausting, by the way. And then we just, we code all day, but then we pass off our work in a PR to somebody else who does a code review on it. And yeah, a lot of it is just, we want somebody to look at it and give feedback on it, but it's not that specific. And I think that's something that I'm kind of pulling out of this, out of your article and out of what Jeffrey is pointing out and what you're saying is that, you know, we've got to basically open the door and say, hey, look, it's okay for you to say, hey, I don't understand this. Can you train me on it? Right. Or I don't know, you know, I don't understand this approach. Can you explain to me why we went this way and not a different way? Or I'm trying to understand this particular area of code, you know, or maybe I do see that this thing could be problematic either for maintenance or security or you know any of the other number of things that we wind up coming back around to because they bit us in the rear end at some point right and you know and those kind of fall toward defects but some of those are, are really kind of how do i put it they're they're kind of cloaked as something else you know if it's a maintenance issue and then we eventually clean up what's causing the maintenance issue it's not necessarily a defect it is a defect but we don't think of it in the same way as we think of a bug right because the code still works. It's just every time we go change it, we have to you know, jump through a whole bunch of hoops to make sure we didn't break anything. It's a maintenance nightmare. And so, you know, and I can kind of imagine the same thing with, you know, whether it's infrastructure or chef recipes or, you know, whatever you're dealing with, that same kind of thing. And so, yeah, if somebody can pass along, hey, look, we do it this way because we found that it it saves us all these other hassles in the back end. And what's funny is, is sometimes you'll get the new person in. My, I have a 15-year-old who's playing video games now. So the total noob will come in, right? And they'll say, oh, well, why don't you try this other approach then, right? That has all those benefits you just listed for why you're doing it this way, but also gives us this other benefit that I'm seeing we might be able to add. And then all of a sudden, you have a better process, right? And by understanding and documenting and pushing and communicating, that opens up all these doors. And that's really, yeah, that's what we're talking about with these code reviews. And and that's back to the original idea. It's all of the above. It sounds like you have a process, you know, after uh, reading through this article, you have a process for conducting these code reviews that makes sure that all these things get communicated about, right? It's not just opening the door for it. It's explicitly calling out, hey, are we thinking about security? Are we thinking about code structure? Are we thinking about, you know, these different levels of concern so that at the end of the day, we know that we've covered our bases here and we're communicating about the things that we care about in our code? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit on an interesting point there, which is about who does code reviews or who can do a code review. 
we were quite clear in the discussions we had at the BBC that we thought that developers, engineers of all levels should participate in the code review process. It shouldn't be a situation where my code can only be reviewed by somebody who is you know, a peer of mine or, or somebody with more experience than me or more familiarity with this than me, for the, just for the reasons you, you've given there, that quite often you get really interesting perspectives and questions and challenges from people who are new to develop, new to engineering, new to uh, this particular code base. And so in order to try and help facilitate that, we put some some prompts and suggestions into our code reviews guide where we're saying, if you're a new developer, if you're new to this code base, here are some things you can try when you're doing a code review. Here are some things you can ask. Does Have you spotted something that looks a little bit inconsistent? I mean, you could ask the author to explain that. Um, have you asked the author about if they've considered security, performance, accessibility, other kinds of non-functional requirements? So a, a bit of a cheat sheet almost where you can say, you know, these are things we should be thinking about when we do code reviews. And it brings more people in the team into that process, right? It means that more junior engineers or, or less experienced engineers can participate and actually give just as much uh, value to that process as as people who, you know, have, have been working on the code for years. What uh, I'm asking, James, is when you're talking about kind of, you know, having junior developers doing code reviews and these kind of things, it seems like a large part of what you're doing is kind of reframing the the intent of the code review. And I don't know if this is a problem you guys have had uh, at the BBC, but I've seen teams in the past where junior developers are very uh, intimidated by the code review process. And, you know, it's kind of seen as a gatekeeping role where they're checking in code and then senior developers are looking at it and kind of, you know, going over it. So I really like the kind of idea of reframing it so that it's, you know, code reviews are everyone's responsibility. It's a collaborative team process. And it's more about the communication rather than the gatekeeping, even though you still get maybe some of those gatekeeping functions. If you do need to have security reviews or have senior developers reviewing code and looking over those things, just by reframing it, you get all the benefits and maybe a much better participation rate, particularly in a remote context where onboarding developers can be a little bit more uh, intimidating, especially for junior developers. You don't have that kind of face time. You don't, you know, it's a little hard to build team cohesion remotely and those kind of things. So is is that a correct kind of analysis of the direction uh, you're going with this? Yeah, absolutely, Caleb. We found that particularly with going more remote first, that junior developers, less experienced developers were quite wary of the process and quite reluctant to get involved. And, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, you can't just lean over to the person sat next to you at your desk and, and you know, informally ask for help. Everything is a bit more formal, and a bit more structured once it's done on just via pull requests. We wanted to really encourage people at all levels to get involved in that process. And yeah, I think we were really reframing code reviews a little bit and make it feel, making it seem more like a collaborative process that is benefiting everybody um, in, in, in the team. I mean, I think we have to recognize as well that code reviews can be quite demanding, can be quite stressful, in fact, for people of, of all levels of experience. You know, ha- having your work looked at by other people can be can be challenging sometimes. But at the same time, it's it's part of being a software engineer that you people have to look at your code and you have to be able to receive feedback about your code and give feedback on others' code and 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 get comfortable with that process. So there is obviously still a gatekeeping function within code reviews, and, and there's an important role for that. But we wanted to try and promote the idea that the team owns the code 
collect, uh, collectively. It's not like un- up to an individual person to decide whether something is okay or not. It should be a collective decision. People can have different perspectives on that. And to make it a bit more of an approachable process that it's not so seen as a really intimidating thing where this really senior experienced person will come and give a verdict on your code. It's, it's more of a dialogue where they say, okay, so why have you approached the problem this way? Have you considered it this way? It's not just a, you know, just the kind of pure gatekeeping process that it might have been seen as um, occasionally in the past. Yeah. I'm going to step into my confessional here for a second because so the job I'm in now when I got hired, so my full-time job, I'm actually writing Ruby on Rails. And then I kind of dabble in React. We're kind of sneaking that into the code a bit now. And when I got hired, just to give a little bit more context, Ruby Rogues, which is our longest running podcast on devchat.tv, has been running for, it will be 10 years in about a month. Okay. And so I'm widely seen as an expert in Ruby on Rails. And I was sold that way when they hired me. Okay. They told everybody that works in the office here in Utah, you know, this guy's an expert. He's a dream hire, blah, 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 blah. And every time I do a code review, I feel like I have to live up to that, right? And so it feels that way for seniors sometimes too, right? They feel like they have to be the one to catch it. They have to be the one to see it. They have to be the one to to know the answer to that. And there are some parts of these applications that I just have not really done a whole lot with. And I have to swallow my pride and take that too. And so I think it's important for everybody at whatever level you're at to just realize, look, You've got a, you know, this is an opportunity for you to level up as much as it is for an opportunity for you to help somebody else level up. You know, one thing I'm curious about is, well, I guess two things. One is, you know, with, with everyone sort of coming into code reviews with a different mindset and some of it being around, hey, how do we, you know, we want to find code defects. Did you or did your team sort of decide or, or sort of come out of this and say, okay, in order to sort of keep people focused on what we want them to be doing and not just sort of, you know, getting them too stressed out about, you know, trying to find something that may not even be there, right? Did, did your team sort of relook at, well, maybe there's a better way for us to find, you know, let's get people's mindset completely away from, you know, I'm going to find something wrong with somebody's code, right? And, 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 and focus that on, hey, Maybe we'll do a better job or maybe we'll sort of rethink how we formalize the QA function or, you know, testing or something like this. This way, everyone understands that that's really where we do, that's where we find code defects, right? And, and, and to really focus people on the, the review process is not about that. If it comes up, great. If not, so that, that's my first question is, did, you know, was there, was there a change in how you also thought about finding defects. And my second question is, coming out of this, I'm not sure how long this has been put into practice now. I'm curious of what have the outcomes been? Like, have you been, you know, measuring, instrumenting this and saying, hey, wow, this is really cool. What we're finding is that the result of all this effort has been that, I don't know, our developers are much more productive or everyone's much happier because we're communicating better or... I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm curious about those two areas. Yeah, James's so, team gets a thousand more code points <laughs> per week. Right. Yeah, I can try and answer the second question. Um, so there's two sides to it, really. I suppose is the qualitative, quantitative side, really. In terms of qualitative, we we didn't really have a precise way of measuring that. We we had some 
discussions earlier on and some feedback from from some developers, particularly ones that were new to working on the code base on the teams that they were finding the process difficult and stressful. We then had some feedback later on that things had improved and that, that there, was a, there was a view that things were now getting easier, for, for especially for, for new developers. I, that's kind of a, a very kind of subjective um, uh, thing. On the more sort of objective quantitative side, we could see we had some software that we were using to track the number of pull requests that were open, how long those pull requests had been in code review, how many code review cycles they'd been through and how many comments were on the, 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 the pull requests. And we saw that all of those measurements kind of moved in the direction we wanted them to go in. So code was spending less time in code review. Um, it was going through less revision cycles. And the result was we were actually merging and shipping that code faster. Now, the code review process wasn't the only thing that we changed during that time. I've got to say there was a lot of changes going on at the time. One of the other things we were working on at the same time, we tried, Charles, you've spoken about mob programming or swarm programming, we called it. We, we've tried that as well. So we were doing a lot of work with mobbing and additional pairing. And that may have also helped bring down the, the burden of code reviews. Um, I'm really interested to hear what other people think about that because we found that by doing more collaboration upfront before you get into the code review stage by having more voices and more kind of perspectives heard during the initial implementation phase quite often the, the the sort of formal okay now let's do a code review part of this is actually tends to be a lot smoother because a lot of that communication has already happened a lot of possible objections or concerns have already been anticipated earlier on so that was something else we were trying at the same time. And I think it's it's a complementary technique. It's not like you don't have to do just that or just change your code reviews process. The, both things can kind of can kind of help you achieve the same goal. But yeah, we, we have seen we have seen improvements both in terms of the, the rate of in which we're able to deliver stuff and also subjective feedback from from anonymous feedback from developers in the team that they were finding the process just easier and more enjoyable. What are what are some tools that you found helpful when doing code reviews? Or, you know, you mentioned something you were using to track code reviews and things like that. Uh, what does it look like on a, on a practical level as far as tools and process when you're doing the code reviews? I mean, are you using GitHub pull requests or do you have other, you know, sort of specialized software or lesser known tools that you're using to help with that? Yeah, so we use GitHub for really most of our work these days and um, so it's github pull request is the main way that we we track that and then we have some tooling built on top of that that we were using to 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 keep an eye on the number of pull requests that were open and the how long things have been in the code review stage and yeah we, we still use things like jira as well for uh, for tracking some more project level activity so those are some of the tools we're using we do have a few in-house tools that we use as well to just sort of just keep an eye on the rate that things are being worked on and, and how long it's taking um, things to see to actually make it to production. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I'm going to chime in here too on a couple of things that got brought up. One, for the mob programming, I completely agree. It helps head off so many issues because, you know, I'll be focused on the code. The other two guys that I work with every day are paying attention and they'll call stuff out. Hey, why are we doing this? Why are we doing it that way? What about this? What about the other thing? And I do the same thing for them. And we just turn out way better code 
you know, from the maintainability, from the reliability, from the performance, from pretty much any measurement you have for code. We, we just do, you know. And so they make they make my code look better, what I commit, and, you know, all around vice versa. We do most of that over Microsoft Teams. I will not tell you how much I dislike Microsoft Teams, but it works. We also use pull requests on GitHub. That's our primary way of doing that. And so all the feedback goes into the pull request. And then when it gets merged, then, you know, it's all still in GitHub if we ever have to go back and look at it. We don't have any real in-house tools and we don't track how long they sit in pull requests because honestly, it's abnormal for a pull request within our organization because we actually review code from the other projects that we're not working on within the organization. We Everybody reviews everybody's stuff. And so if you don't understand what's going on in the other project, that's fine. You just ask, right? But you have to stay on top of your review. So if they answer, you have to be on top of it because you don't want to hold them up either. But yeah, that works pretty well for us. It'd be abnormal if anything stayed in the queue for longer than a day for us. So that that hasn't been an issue for us. But yeah, those are the same tools we're using. I will also not tell you how much I dislike, I mean, hate, I mean, completely hate, despise Jira, but we use Jira as well. So yeah, that, you know, a lot of the same approach. But I think we're also, you're working for a fairly large company. I'm working for a large enterprise. I'm deliberately not saying where I work. But I work for a fairly large enterprise company here in the U.S. Yeah, one of the you mentioned teams there. One of the one of the things that we found when going through this process, thinking about code reviews, was I think some of us, probably myself included, I was guilty of this at one point, was thinking that a code review and a pull request are the same thing. And the way you do code reviews is you write comments on a pull request. And when we started to talk about code reviews and think about how we could do them, we realized there's so many other. Uh, ways of doing code reviews. You know, the idea of code reviews long predates GitHub, obviously. And often adding comments to a pull request on GitHub is the least efficient way of doing a code review. You know, like it, it can be very powerful, particularly where you've got distributed teams, as we've already said, people remote working, people in different time zones. It can be very efficient if you need that asynchronous communication. But there are, you know, there are situations where the most efficient way of doing a code review would be to get on a Teams call or a Zoom call or something else with the other person, the author, if you're the reviewer, and talk through their changes and try and understand their reasoning, the thinking behind the change they made, talk about alternatives. Yes, you might want to then think about summarizing the results of those conversations in some form so it can be persisted to the to the to the pull request or some other form so that other people can can, you know see the outcome of that discussion. But one of the things we try to encourage our engineers to do is if you're having a, a conversation with somebody on a pull request and you're getting the comment and sort of back and forth, comment, reply, comment, reply, that's usually a sign, okay, maybe this will benefit from a call. Maybe we should talk about this face-to-face because it's just, you know, it's just not the most efficient way of two people explaining their thinking, you know, getting on a call is, is often going to save uh, time and, and save misunderstandings as well. Man, that sounds like work. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, it's, I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, but the reality is, is that's, that's kind of, at least for us, our default behavior, but I don't think anybody's like formalized that as something that, Hey, if you're having back and forth, get on a call, which I think would be helpful for us to do. Right. Because sometimes it does turn into a lengthy back and forth and we should at some point just pull the cord, get on a call and make it end. Yeah, so this is, this is 
I think the uh, some developers do that kind of thing instinctively. It, a lot of the time, it would come down to your experiences, maybe code reviews you've you've worked on that have gone well or, or gone less well, or maybe even aspects of your personality type. You know how you prefer to communicate. Some people will instinctively you know, if they're in an office, go over and talk to the author of the code or they will pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Other people, because of the way they work, because of their communication preferences, would rather just write a long description of, of their thoughts on a pull request. So what we wanted to do through this, through writing this guide to code reviews was to sort of at least give people the opportunity to think about the alternatives and why there might sometimes be better ways of communicating. So you know, we, we don't insist upon everybody going on a call all the time to discuss pull requests. It's, sometimes it's just not practical, but it should always be there as a, you know, as a kind of uh, something that people can say, okay, look, I think this might be a good idea. It's something we probably want to consider. And at least people are aware of the options. That makes sense. I'm kind of curious, going back to earlier in our conversa- conversation, you know, we talked about different areas that you call out or different questions that you tell people they can ask in a code review. What what areas do you specifically give people that they can think about or call out in a code review? So I suppose the starting point, you know, I've, I've spoken quite a bit about how we thought communication was really important. Some of the ideas that we kind of suggest in, in our guide is asking people to, we've already spoken about it a little bit, to seek clarification. If there's things that don't seem completely obvious on the change, asking the author to clarify them. Sometimes we find that when people seek that clarification, the author might say, actually, or you know, in a, in, a, in a conversation talking about it, you might say, well, okay, if you're asking that question, then somebody else is going to think this in the future as well. So is there a documentation need here? Is the code readable enough? Do we need to put something, you know, kind of, do we have to have some additional documentation or explanation to make this easier to understand? So yeah, getting clarification is an important first one. And then, I mean, everything really kind of is, is all about asking questions. So, you know, the, the cliche about there being no stupid questions, we, we try and kind of spell that out in our, in, our, in our guide to code reviews. We really want people to ask questions on the assumption that if you're thinking it, if you're going to ask the question, somebody else is probably thinking it too. Somebody else is, is at least wondering the same thing. And as I already said, we, we try and encourage developers to think about things like non-functional requirements uh, quite often things that might have been missed during the initial requirements analysis or, or during the implementation. You know, have we thought about performance on this? Are we load testing this? Have we updated documentation? Is there missing test coverage? You know, a lot of these things that can be very easily, um, for, in, even if we have the most perfect engineering process from start to end, things can get missed. And sometimes asking those questions, even if the answer is just, yes, we've already anticipated all of those things, it, it's useful to have somebody checking those uh, those questions and yeah i mean that those are kind of those are the main areas really and we do kind of try and encourage people to if they're adding comments on the pull request to sort of offer links and examples as well so if you're going to sort of say you know there's there's a better way of doing this or there's an alternative approach to doing this or there's a more i don't know idiomatic way of doing this in this particular language you know, it, it really helps to sort of give a bit more context than that, either to give an example, to link to some relevant documentation, or a blog post that explains the technique in more detail. And it really kind of gives the the author or the person reading the comments the opportunity to do a bit of research and, and read up and understand what it is that you're saying and save some of that kind of time with back and forth explanations. Uh, something we talk about a lot in the DevOps world is the kind of the shift left philosophy around things like bringing security to the forefront of design 
before you actually even start implementing an application or even infrastructure, right? Like understanding how the application is going to be deployed and designing around that during the initial phases. And some of the things that that you said uh, kind of brought that to mind as far as pull requests go, where it's like, instead of kind of pushing all of the review and the collaboration to the end, you know, kind of the swarm programming approach and things like that, seem like it could kind of be used in a similar manner to actually bring some of the review process to the beginning of the design rather than waiting until something's already implemented in order to do that. Is that part of kind of what you guys have done? Do you feel like you've brought maybe some of the the code review process into the design and made it more collaborative or uh, have you thought about that aspect of it at all? I think that is a real opportunity, like, and that is something that you know we're quite we're quite excited about being able to do more of. I I, I don't want to say that we've we've kind of necessarily completely solved that problem, or we found a, a way of anticipating all of those issues, you know, ahead of time. My hope is that by improving our code review process and gradually pushing, as you say, more of this thinking earlier on in the process it will gradually be, become more ingrained in, in the way we work and, and we can and we can we can get better at anticipating those things earlier on but yeah i mean i think from my point of view the the, the truth is that some of those things will will still get missed and and we need at the code review stage to sort of really just double check that we've 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 not neglected any of those areas yeah i think i guess my thinking on that is definitely not to preempt the code review because like you said that is kind of the the last stage and it's i think it's important uh regardless i think it's just more around you know kind of increasing that collaboration early on particularly in a remote context what i've seen in some teams is developers will kind of get lost in whatever they're doing and they'll forget to communicate because you know communication sometimes doesn't come naturally to all developers right might be a stereotype or a personality type but it is what it is and so i think having that kind of sharing and communication built in earlier on can help with the types of situations where a developer works on something, implements something, and then uh, maybe it's very technically clever, but during the review phase, you find out that, oh, actually it doesn't quite do what it needs to do, you know, or those kind of things. So I think there's there's an opportunity there to to move some of that to the forefront as well and, and just to work better in a remote context. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Caleb. And one of the ways that we, one of the ways I think this affected us sometimes was we noticed when a certain code review had maybe been more taxing or more time consuming than it might than it might have been expected to be, or or that issues were only found out at the code review stage, which were, for example, quite significant architectural issues, things that should have been anticipated much earlier on, and. And we wanted to try and use those insights that we got from the code review process to try and improve the earlier stages further left than our process for the for the next iteration. So um, when we have team retrospectives and things like that, we'll often try and talk about code reviews that were difficult or issues that only came out in code review that really could have been discussed or you know would have benefited from more communication or more collaboration earlier on in the process. And I think that is actually quite a helpful technique because sometimes I think there's a temptation you think, right, the code review is finished. Let's ship the code. Let's forget about it and move on. And often you can actually look at the code review and say, you know, what what have we learned from this that we could have, we what insights can we take away from this that we could actually apply earlier on in the development process next time we go through this cycle? I, I really love that because I think what you're what you're describing is, you know, a continuous improvement, which is a huge part of the DevOps philosophy. 
and B, you're describing a feedback loop where you're doing something and then taking the data that you've gleaned from that process and improving your process as you go. So I think that's really that's really fantastic. And you know, I can really see how that ties into kind of the overall DevOps philosophy. So one thing that I'm wondering about, because you talked about, you know, sometimes the review process might take longer than it should have or that you might have wanted it to and things like that. And that made me think, and it's a question that you actually, you know, put up that might be a good one to ask. And I'm kind of curious, I mean, are there downsides to a code review process or or maybe downsides to a bad code review process? Maybe that's a better question. I don't know. Um, are, there, are there reasons that you wouldn't want to do this or ways to avoid problems while you're trying to do this? I think for us, the real the real goal was to, we, we knew that code reviews were something we wanted to do and we, we had this uh, attachment to doing them, but we wanted to be able to clearly explain to ourselves and to the, the non-engineering parts of the organization why code reviews exist and what they're for and have a better understanding of what they're for. So I think that's a useful exercise because, you know, in the past we had a situation where, you know, maybe something would take quite a long time to get through code review and, and product managers or product owners might say, well, what, what's happening? Why, what, you know, what's happening in this code review process? Why are we doing it? And hopefully what we have now is a, is a, is a better set of answers for that and a, more of a shared understanding. The downsides, I, I think, I, I can't see any downsides really about kind of reflecting on code reviews. I think, I think reflecting on every stage in your development process at some point is, is going to give you some, you know, in, in, that, in that same spirit of continuous improvement, it's going to give you the opportunity to, to do things better or work smarter or avoid pitfalls in the future. Um, so I think reflecting on the process is a, is a, is a, for us has been a really powerful way of, of, of kind of getting more understanding of our, of our process. But, you know, code, code reviews are, are, can be really complicated and, and, and difficult and, and things do still go wrong. You know, that there are situations where, code reviews don't go as we as we'd like but it's something that we're constantly trying to work on we didn't want this to be a thing where we just wrote a document about code reviews and then said okay we're done we've solved the problem of code reviews we're going to move on we wanted it to be something that we could keep on building on we put it in our one of our open source repos so that it's kind of it's front and center the people outside the organization can see it and we keep on iterating on it and adding to it and changing it as we get more as we learn more about what works for us or what doesn't work for us, you know, anybody can do a pull request against it and say, hey, this, this technique really worked for me in when I was learning to do code reviews. And then it becomes something that can benefit other people in the future. So I, I guess kind of a follow-on to that then is, let's say that we've got a DevOps team out there, right? And they've got, you know, a set of tools and processes and people that use them and people that rely on them, right? And some of this is codified in code, right? You know, be it bash scripts or, you know, we talked about chef or, I mean, whatever, right? And some of it may be codified in just, you know, a process that people follow for stuff, right? I could see a code review being just as useful for that, right? But, you know, whatever it is, let's say that they're listening to this and they're going, you know, this is a really good idea. We should definitely have people looking over, you know, what we're putting down as the way that we get this work done, right? Be it, you know, formal programming code or, you know, scripts or whatever, or yeah, even just, you know, hey, do this, then do this, do this, do this, right? How should they start implementing that if they haven't been doing that to date? Well, I mean, first thing to say is there's lots of great resources out there already. Um, so it's not um, the, the, 
the article that I wrote is kind of summarizing a process that we went through to think about code reviews, but there's a lot of great advice online about code reviews. And if you Google code review best practices and guidelines, there's loads of art, load of articles out there. And I linked to a couple of them in the, uh, in the article. Some teams might find that the information in those resources is a good fit for them. So you might read, I think it's Gagelioros' post, which was a big inspiration for me about code reviews. Um, you might say, well, that's actually a perfect description of how I want my code reviews in my team to work. So we're just going to say, this is our process. We're just going to follow this. For us, it was a little bit different because we felt that we had there was lots of specifics about how we worked in our organization, our, our specific technical stack, how our continuous integration, continuous delivery processes worked, how we how we used GitHub specifically in our teams. We wanted to have something that was a bit more tailored to our process. So I would say decide if the any of the existing online resources is a good fit for you. If it is, great, use it. If not, then you might want to go through the process that we went through and actually come up with a guide yourself. Um, but you know that. A lot of this information is not, and, and these and these pieces of advice is not brand new. You know, it's kind of it's it's um, it's wisdom that's kind of been going around for a few years. So it's a question of picking out the things that make the most sense to you and are most relevant to um, you know your team, the structure of your organization, the technology you're working on, and then have somewhere for developers to find that information. So you know, on GitHub, you can obviously have pull request templates, you can link to a document with these guidelines and, and bits of advice that you want them to follow. And and I think the other part of it is, is as I said, just to just to keep on reviewing that process and reflecting on it in the future. You know, if you see how it goes, you try it for a few sprints or try it for a few months and then have a look at the process again, see if it's working and see if it needs any changes. The other thing I would say is um, one thing that really helped us was about in terms of reducing the burden of, uh, of code reviews was to try and automate anything that you can. So I know one code base that um, I worked on for a little while, a lot of the pull requests would, we would have a lot of uh, comments where people were just changing bits of white space or semicolons or minor formatting issues, which were all put completely valid. But, you know, robots are much better at those kind of code reviews. You know, if you've got linting tools available for whichever your whichever technical environment you're using use those instead you know apply automatic formatting to to use automation so that when when people are doing code reviews they can focus on the stuff that really matters so yeah and also as we already said i think pairing and and, and mob programming can be a really good way of, of making code reviews um less difficult is your guide uh, to code reviews, is that public or is there any plan to to make it public? I, I think a lot of people would be very interested, especially in an organization as large as the BBC and as well-respected as the CBC and understanding, you know, kind of how you guys do it and actually seeing maybe maybe the full the full guide, if that's something you guys are thinking about releasing or, or already have. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah, actually I, already... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I want to pile on because you brought up linting a minute ago and we do that, right? We pull in the linting setup from some other company, right, that they published. And then we say, we're going to use their linting strategy, except this and this and this. And yeah, I'd love to get BBCs and then say, that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply. We're going to add this, this. This doesn't quite work for us, but something similar. And yeah. And then I, I spend half the time putting it together and I look really smart. <laughs> Yeah, we we all have a bunch of those. We have a bunch of those as well. You know, other other company style guides that we've we've uh, we've yeah. followed and incorporated into the way that we work. And I think, you know, that's that's the great thing about open source collaboration is you can reuse work that other people have done. A code review process is obviously harder to 
you know run automatically than a, than a linter but it the guide that we wrote is is publicly accessible i can i can share the link with with you and your listeners mm-hmm. and it's out there it's in it's in one of our open source repos because the project that we developed it for is an open source project in itself so we wanted to put it in the readme say look this is how we do code reviews if you're going to submit a pull request to this project this is this is what you can expect this is how we're going to approach our code reviews so yeah it's it, it, it's already out there and we'd really welcome people's comments on it pull requests on it and just get more feedback from and and if people find it useful in their organizations and they want to uh, just link to it and say hey this is the approach we're following then we'd love to hear about it yeah that'd be great if you put it in the chat in zoom then we can add it to the show notes any other questions you guys before we go to picks uh nothing on my side i think that does it anything we forgot to bring up that you wanted to talk about james no nothing from me i think yeah we've covered everything all right well let's go ahead and dive into picks then Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Now, James, I don't know if you've listened to the show, but Picks are the set is a segment at the end of the show where we talk about stuff that we like. So it's just anything that we really want to shout out about. I'll let Jeffrey go first since he's kind of a little more experienced at this. Then we'll have Caleb go and then I'll throw out some picks and then we'll let you uh, share what you want to shout out about. Cool. So I'll uh, you know, talk about just the pick I've got for this week is an interesting trying to think of how to call it. It's sort of like a, a learning platform called Learnistic. And it is a, I mean, this is, right, there's a field full of all these different platforms for building, like whether it's like actual formal courses you're trying to provide or just, you know, sort of video or audio content, right? There's a lot of different ways to do this. But I found that Learnistic has a really interesting platform where if you're, what you're trying to do is get your content out there to, your audience's mobile app, you know, mo- mobile devices through, through a, a mobile app, they are doing it so you can basically create a custom app for, you know, your company or your podcast or whatever it is that you do. It goes under, it gets sort of bundled under the Learnistic app, but it's it becomes a separate app underneath that. So it's sort of interesting. And they give you a lot of control as a content developer to publish what content you want for each individual user. So what shows up for each user is going to be a little bit different based on you know how they have their access control set up. So it's a really interesting, and what they're doing for you is basically taking care of all of the sort of bits and pieces that, that make all that work. So it's it really is a pretty robust platform. Um, I'm starting to look at it, starting to use it for just in my practice, um, how I provide content. Sometimes it is course courses that are custom for specific clients. Sometimes it's just, you know, sort of, in, you know, 
content that I just want to provide to either, you know, all my sort of audience and prospects and clients and, you know, just everyone. And it's a really, like I said, what I've found so far is it's a really cool way, really efficient way and, and cost efficient as well, just to get your content out there to, uh, to the folks that you want to get it to. So yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I think they're doing something interesting. That's a little bit different from all of the other like learning platforms that exist. Nice. Now I want to go check it out. Yeah. yeah, I've been using Teachable. I'm pretty happy with it. But yeah, I'm always on the lookout for something new that might give me a little bit of an edge on, yeah, just getting people what I want to give them. So anyway, Caleb, what are your picks? Yeah, so uh, my pick for the week is a tool called Harness. You can find it at harness.io. It's a pretty established uh, player in the DevOps space. Uh, I've used it before, but recently I was kind of looking at how in a, in a new organization, how we can get uh, things like canary deployments going, blue-green deployments. How do we manage, you know, if we need to deploy uh, interdependent services together? How do we track that? You know, those kind of things. And uh, so I was able to go through a demo of the tool recently and start looking at implementing it again. And it just kind of brought it back to top of mind for me. And I, A, it, it is actually better than it ever was. So when I used it a few years ago, uh, it was good. It's gotten even better. And I, I think that's something that a lot of teams are missing is kind of a developer self-service platform for handling, you know, how do we deploy to these different platforms? Uh, how do we kind of track that, get visibility across the organization? Uh, how do we kind of implement standard workflows and, uh, you know, things like that? So this is a really, really interesting tool. Uh, does what it does really well. It's a little more on the enterprise side of the DevOps sort of tooling space, so probably not for tiny startups. But if you are at the point where you're scaling and you're running into issues like standardizing deployments, trying to uh, scale up and let developers kind of self-service deployments and define their own workflows and those kind of things, it's uh, very well worth looking into. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Just making sure I'm not muted. <laughs> I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So I do want to shout out about Dev Influencers. I'm not going to go into too many more details than I went into at the beginning, but you can get the podcast at devinfluencers.com. That's devinfluencers with an S.com slash podcast. You can also apply for the accelerator, devinfluencers.com slash apply. And I've been helping people get their podcast started and build an audience so that they can build a career in the future that they want. And I'm I'm really, really enjoying it. I, I just, I did not realize how much fun helping people like coaching, direct coaching is. And I just, I love, 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 love doing it. So, and I've been recording videos and putting them up on Teachable. So that's, that's where the Teachable mention comes in. A few other picks. So I don't know how things are in other parts of the US, but here in Utah, things are pretty much opening up. The mask mandate lifts for everything except schools. And I guess certain spaces with certain numbers of people where you can't social distance. But for everywhere else, the mask mandate lifts in like three days. My wife and I actually went on a date and we went out to a movie. We were like two of the four people in the movie theater uh, watching the movie, but we really, really enjoyed it. It was called The Courier. It has Benedict Cumberbatch in it. Um, it's a spy movie. Now, before you get all excited, like James Bond? No. In fact, uh, <laughs> I have to tell this story because it's pretty funny. So uh, my wife and I, we were walking out of the theater. I was waiting for her outside the restroom. And the the girls who were sitting like three rows behind us were walking out. And one of them goes, did you like it? And the other one goes, yeah, it was okay. 
and she goes, did you like it? And the other girl goes, yeah, well, it was okay, but I was kind of expecting more of a James Bond movie. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you didn't watch the trailer, did you? Because the trailer, it's very obvious. It's a Cold War spy based on a true story kind of thing, right? And so it's going to be about tradecraft. It's not going to be about somebody jumping through windows and shooting guns. Sorry. But I really enjoy some of the historical context that some of these films have brought up. Yeah, I know they take some license, right, to make the the film more interesting. But, you know, generally, I find that mostly they stick to the facts on most of these films. You still have to go check, right? But this guy, he was a salesman in Great Britain. And the British were still allowed to do business with the USSR in the 60s. And so he opened up accounts and was selling machine parts to the Soviets in Moscow in the 1960s. And MI6 recruited him on behalf of the US to carry intelligence back. And so this official in the USSR winds up becoming a traitor to the USSR and he's feeding them all this information. And some of it, like you, you see it and you're like, that's how they knew about that. Oh, that's how they knew about this. It was really, really fascinating. But yeah, so he would just pass it off and this guy would just take it back and never knew what was in a lot of it, right? And anyway, uh, it's a terrific film and it's it's really fascinating because you're spending the whole time sitting there going, is he going to get caught? And uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to spoil the end of it. I, I have a no spoilers policy if it's been out less than a year and this movie has been out less than a year. So go watch it. It's terrific. He does such a terrific job too because you kind of see him in a lot of these other movies as kind of this svelte kind of action figure. And, you know, he's been at Cumberbatch and so he's he's in shape, but he definitely pulls off playing the kind of normal, friendly, jovial salesman guy who, you know, isn't the action figure that's going to go in and save the day. So I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And so, yeah, that's The Courier if you're out looking for a movie to go watch. James, what are your picks? Okay, so my pick is about diagrams. I've been thinking a lot about diagrams recently, and a large part of my work at the moment is uh, trying to make sure we've got architectural diagrams for some of the projects we're working on. So my pick is, well, it's not new. In fact, it's really old, and I'm sure a lot of people are already aware of it, but there's a a particular website that I found recently. So Plant UML is is a tool that you can use to generate diagrams. Some people may already be aware of it. I only discovered it fairly recently, but I found a website called Real World Plant UML, and it gives some examples that make it much easier to see some of the things that's possible to do with Plant UML. For for those who are thinking, oh, I don't want to do UML diagrams, uh, it actually generates lots of different types of diagrams, not just UML diagrams. And um, we're using it uh, quite a bit in my work for um, creating threat models for some of our services. One of the benefits of using Plant UML rather than another diagramming tool is that you actually write the diagram in a textual format and then it generates the graphics from that for you, which means you can keep the the, the, the source of the diagram in version control. People can do pull requests against it and that kind of thing. Anyway, this website, Real World Plant UML, is uh, really helpful because the, the syntax can sometimes be a little bit forbidding if you're not used to it and it shows you some examples of what can be achieved with it and how you can achieve it so that's been i've been copying quite a few things from that recently just to uh, uh help with making my diagrams awesome very cool all right well before we wrap up i'm assuming that people can find you online uh looks like you published a medium 
So if you want to let people know where you do that, and then if you're on GitHub and Twitter and places like that, if you can let people know where you are there too, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So my username on, on Medium and on, on Twitter is, well, my name without the UE at the end. So it's James Dono, uh, J-A-M-E-S-D-O-N-O-H. And the same on GitHub as well. Um, so you can find me there or um, same on Twitter. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. This was fun. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.